Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I look at the title of the sermon, as I I thought I had it this time last week, the ministry of women in the mission of Jesus, as I have peered into these three verses, uh, there's so much more here. There is the the full complement of gender complementarity, manhood and womanhood, both present here in this text. And so, Lord, as we As we dive into the Bible as a church, I pray that you would help us to see and to savor and to relish and to enjoy the teaching of the Bible about the absolute equality of men and women in every way, equal in value and dignity, and yet different, different as day is from night, different as can be with reference to to our our roles and, and responsibilities in the home and in the church. And so I, I pray that you would come. This is a countercultural teaching. I'm thankful, Lord, it's one that our church doesn't grate against, that we have a, a large um, scale agreement and harmony on what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood. I just pray that you would help us to continue to get our, our bearings on this, especially if there are those among us who, who haven't heard teaching on this topic. And then I pray, Father, that you would help us to move forward, not just with our, um, our heads stocked with information, but our very lives as men and women, as boys and girls, uh, aimed at transformation. Uh, this sermon ought to have an immediate and powerful impact on each of our lives. It is, more, it is uh, difficult not to think of a way that this touches our souls very deeply, so please come now. Um, Lord, we are swimming upstream on the culture against this one. Now let us not be surprised about it. Let us simply hold fast to what Scripture says for our own joy and for your glory and live out this vision as we flourish in light of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, I'll invite you to open a Bible along with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, Today's sermon text can be found on page 864 in the Red Bibles, page 864. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, just five, years, uh, five days ago, excuse me, five days ago, an evangelical organization known as the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood publicly released a document by the name of the Nashville Statement, a coalition, a coalition for Biblical Sexuality. I wonder how many of you have picked up in the story in the news. The Nashville Statement, is this familiar to folks? Okay, a little bit. Um, it has not made the same impact as Hurricane Katrina ha- or Hurricane uh, Her Harvey has in the news, um, and yet it has most definitely caught the attention of our national culture and the news media outlets in particular. Um, I just uh, encourage you to Google Nashville Statement and you will find the New York Times and CNN and Fox News and USA Today and the Washington Post and even our own Twin Cities news outlets, including the, uh, the, the Star Tribune, have all run stories on it. And most of them have authored, um, offered scathing review and assessment of what is known as the Nashville Statement. Well, what is it? The Nashville Statement is so named because it was drafted and adopted in Nashville, Tennessee. That was the geographic location. 
In many ways, the Nashville Statement is, in some sense, the inevitable and fitting follow-up to a document that was drafted 30 years ago in 1987 called the Danvers Statement. And the Danvers Statement was named because it was drafted in, you guessed it, Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh, The Danvers Statement, simply 30 years ago, sought to chart out a vision for the Church of Jesus Christ about what the Bible says regarding manhood and womanhood in view of the overwhelming surge of feminism that our culture found itself in in the mid to late 80s and still does. Um, What's fascinating about the Danvers Statement 30 years ago was it, it really wasn't so much as a blip on the radar of the broader culture. It practically wasn't a blip on the radar of the church culture. How many of you have heard of the Danvers Statement? Okay, two, right? Didn't make that big of an impact. Now, the Nashville Statement is the sequel except this time, the year is 2017, not 1987. And the facility, I suppose, with which our news is disseminated these days, instantaneously as it is, um, has brought the Nashville Statement to the fore. It's a document that seeks to chart out a biblical vision of manhood and womanhood, but for 2017, um, particularly with reference to our country's overwhelming embrace of homosexuality and transgender lifestyle and practice. So the statement itself is a brief document. It's got a little several paragraph preamble and it's followed by 14 articles. The articles are given in the form of affirmations and denials. It is, it's got a lot of clarity to it. And it takes on topics of what the Bible teaches concerning marriage, um, the complementarity of gender uh, as man as male and female, homosexuality, transgender issues, same-sex attraction, in addition to charting out a pattern for wise and thoughtful cultural engagement for Christians, including the absolute priority of speaking the truth in love and with tenderness and with grace to our culture. And then finally, and most importantly, the priority of offering the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all persons, for all persons, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and are offered the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And at this point, I just have to absolutely quote one of the articles. It's Article 12 of the National Statement. You'll get a flavor of why I am uh, as I do this. Article 12 says this, We affirm that the grace of God in Christ gives both meaningful pardon and transforming power, and that this pardon and power enable a follower of Jesus to put to death sinful desires and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We deny that the grace of God is insufficient to forgive all sexual sins and to give power for holiness to every believer who feels drawn into sexual sin. Friends, you just have to know that's my life. That, that's what I preach I would, I would literally give my life for the truth of a statement like that. It's that important to me. And that's how we desire to live as a gospel-centered church family, not just with reference to the issue of gender and sexuality, but all areas of life. The grace of God and the gospel of Christ is about pardon for sin, and it's about power for new life in Him. That's what grace is. So you, you owe it to yourself to read the Nashville Statement if you haven't, and we've, na- we've made no public resolution as elders, nor do I suspect we will as to where we stand on it, much less some sort of corporate statement as a church uh, in support of it, but you just deserve to know where I stand on it. Um, I am obviously incredibly encouraged 
about it and supportive of it. And I attempted to sign it the other day online, and that didn't go so well. I thought I'd put my name on there, and it didn't quite work out, but uh, I, I intended to anyway. Um, I believe the Nashville Statement and its vision dovetails with my personal convictions and, more importantly, with the public convictions of the Bible. Um, at the outset to the preamble of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement is a quotation from, from Psalm 100, verse 3. Psalm 100, verse 3 invites us to know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. I love that. That truth is a stark reminder to us in the 21st century where in this country it is so common to imagine that we are the ones who establish our own identity especially as it relates to gender, as to male and female. Psalm 100 verse 3 is designed by God to trumpet the good news that we are made by a good creator and wise creator God who knits us together in our mother's womb and he assigns to us a gender according to his pleasure marked by outward evidences on our bodies for his glory and for our benefit. God makes us male and he fashions us as female and they are both very, very good. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. So the biblical teaching concerning gender, uh, the scriptural instruction for us as it relates to manhood and womanhood is thick through the pages of the Bible. And we in this church have visited this topic on a number of occasions and yet by God's providence, um, inside of a, a week from the signing and publication of the Nashville Statement, we find ourselves at the feet of a text um, set within the broader Gospel of Luke that simply and powerfully outlines the God-given, Christ-ordained roles of manhood and womanhood. So we've looked at this topic from a number of different angles, but I'm not sure that we've ever addressed it from the vantage point of Jesus in the context of the Gospels. What does Jesus teach about men and women? What can we learn from Christ as we study the example of his ministry and how he approaches the issue of gender? What lessons are there for us that they transcend culture so that they are equally as relevant in his context in the first century as they would be in ours in the 21st? A careful reading of today's text connected with the broader biblical witness gives us a clear and convincing vision of what it means to follow Jesus in the context of the Great Commission uniquely as male and as female. And uh, as, I, as I talk about manhood and womanhood, I especially want for the younger um, folks among us to think in terms of, I'm a girl growing up into womanhood. I'm a boy growing up into manhood. I happen to be the, the father of a 13-year-old right now, and I can't believe where the years have gone. I got five years left with this guy before he goes off to college, and so he's become a man, a man very quickly. And it's coming quickly for all of you. So think in terms of manhood and womanhood today for you boys and girls that are with us, because you're moving there soon. So let's get started. Would you follow along with me? I'll read just three verses, Luke chapter 8, 1 to 3. Luke 8, 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. 
Here's the big idea today. We see it in this passage, and we see it literally from Genesis to Revelation. In the mission of Jesus, men and women, boys and girls, stand equal in value and dignity, yet different in role and responsibility. In the mission of Jesus, men and women stand equal in value and dignity, yet different in role and responsibility. So today's sermon is really super simple. It has two points. It literally boils down to two words. One word for manhood, one word for womanhood. Let's begin with point one. Jesus ordains men to head his kingdom mission. Jesus ordains men to head his kingdom mission. The first sentence in chapter 8, verse 1 of Luke makes plain the mission of Jesus. Let's just start there. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That is such a powerful sentence. Jesus, particularly at this point in the gospel of Luke, is a man in motion. From big cities to small villages, Jesus is a herald and a preacher with no time to waste. Sorry, I'm missing a page here. Yeah, there it is. From Luke chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to Luke chapter 9, verse 50, we see Jesus on the move. In the, one, in the words of one commentator, Jesus is a Savior who is constantly on the move. For nearly two straight chapters, Jesus doesn't sit down once. And I recommend you to read Luke chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to 9, verse 50 in one sitting to see this. It's just one event after another. So what's the mission of Jesus? Well, verse 1 tells us he was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus' work involved both proclaiming and bringing, both demonstration and communication. He talked the talk and he walked the walk. Jesus preached good news. Jesus was good news. Jesus was busy proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, fair enough. What does that mean? What, what is the kingdom of God? It's a phrase that rolls off the tip of our tongues very easily in the church and in Scripture. What does it mean? Why is it such good news? Well, in many ways, the kingdom of God, that phrase kingdom of God, that's the central message of the entire Bible. And we can break it down really simply. The kingdom of God just means God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what Jesus has been sent to do, to gather God's people into God's place underneath God's rule and blessing. That's what we mean when we speak of the kingdom. What God began with his ancient covenant people, the Jews, he continues today through the church, a church that Jesus has bought with his own precious blood on the cross. For Jesus, the pathway to his crown, he's a king headed for a kingdom, the pathway to his crown is through the cross. And the church is comprised of all of those who are turning from their sin and toward all that Jesus purchased for them by his blood through the cross. So the church is an outpost. It's, it's a microcosm of the kingdom of God. The new community that Jesus is building here at Mount Evangelical Free Church and every local church around the world is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Those who name his name and preach his gospel and seek to live in humble and joyful submission to every word 
that he teaches. The church is the sign and the instrument of the kingdom of God in the world. God's people under God's rule and blessing in God's place. And the apostles are the ones who lead this mission. Well, the scriptures tell us by description as well as prescription that this role of leading the mission is given to men. So what sort of men? Well, Christ-like men, godly men, tough men, tender men, servant-hearted men, men of character, men with gifts of preaching and teaching and shepherding and leading and protecting the church of Christ. You may have noticed that we're one of those churches that unapologetically and enthusiastically endorses male leadership. Why would we do that? Well, one of the reasons is because that's how Jesus did it. Verse 1, soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. Who was with him? The twelve. Remember the twelve? We met all twelve of them in Luke chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, the other James, Simon, there were two Judases, that makes 12. Jesus names these men his apostles, his sent ones. By chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, verse 1, we'll see precisely what they're going to be sent out to do, namely to preach and to teach and to heal and to announce the coming kingdom of God. The apostles will be the very foundation of Christ's church. Why didn't he choose women for this role? Some have suggested that Jesus didn't choose women for this role because it would have been culturally awkward or maybe culturally impossible. And that's the reason why. Well, you tell me, how well do you know Jesus? When's the last time you knew Jesus to not do something because it was culturally awkward or impossible for a man who can walk on water? Since when did Jesus ever avoid the awkward or impossible? This is Jesus we're talking about here. He's constantly doing both the awkward and impossible. No, Jesus, Jesus is upholding something here. Very deep, very ancient, very precious, and very good. And it is the truth that at the heart of mature biblical manhood is a strong desire to know and feed, lead, and protect God's people. That's why Jesus does it this way. Yet the fallen human heart tends to disappear uh, suppress and distort this truth. But that's exactly why churches are in the business of receiving and relishing this truth, preaching it, enjoying it, living it, loving it. In our society, and sadly even in the church today, there is rampant ignorance of and ambivalence toward gender roles. But in the scriptures, there is untold insight and enthusiasm for them. So what's the application for us today on, on the manhood side of the equation? Well, simply that we as a church ought to be, both men and women alike, eager to pursue our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ within the context of godly, servant-hearted, male leadership, both in the home and in the church. And men of Mount Evangelical Free Church, this means that as it relates to God's call on our lives, it is crystal clear that first we are to lead ourselves Next, our families, 
And then as God gives us gifting and opportunity, the church, that we must be happily, obediently, and courageously committed to just step up to the plate and swing for the fences on this one. We are to be the leaders of God's mission. We don't think of this as our duty as much as our delight. We don't just put up with male leadership. We, we prize it. And truth be told, we all men and women deeply desire it to be this way in the core of our being. I say that because church leadership is not for everyone. And it's not for every man. This work has edges to it. It has burdens that accompany to it. You bring this thing home with you and pain that results from it that both godly men and godly women are happy for gifted men to shoulder. So, do you believe this truth? However God has gifted you as a man or a woman, do you live and do you model this truth with your life? Do you defend this truth when it's second-guessed? Again, just Google Nashville Statement and you will see our culture like a dog with a chew toy on the Nashville Statement. It is not going down well. Do you defend this truth? Jesus ordains men to be the head of his kingdom mission. Second point today. Jesus ordains women to help his kingdom mission. Jesus ordains women to help his kingdom mission. Now, this is my favorite part of the teaching on biblical manhood and womanhood. It's my favorite part because what we typically think of when we hear that word help or helper and what the Bible unequivocally means when it pronounces that women are helper are two very different things. When we hear the word help or helper, we tend to immediately think to, it refers to women as the junior varsity gender. How many of us think that way with that word? The second string sex. Women are riding the bench of the family, of the marriage, and of the local church. And yet from the very first occurrence of this word in Holy Scripture, straight through its last occurrence, the word help or helper indicates something about women in God's design that on the one hand makes them equal in every possible way to men and on the other hand demonstrates how very different men and women are from one another and designed to be. In the mission of Jesus, women and men are equal in value and dignity yet different in role and responsibility. So before we get to verses 2 and 3 of today's text, we need a little broader biblical overview here to get a sense of the biblical narrative up to this point and the culture into which Jesus is speaking and stepping and what he's assuming about God's word with reference to women especially. From the beginning of the Bible story, woman is made with reference to man not above him, not below him, but right beside him, literally out of the side of Adam to be his companion and his equal. Genesis 1.27 is crystal clear. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women stand equal before God in value and dignity and before one another. Genesis 2.18, as we heard read for us just moments ago, makes this plain of day when, plain as day when we read, the Lord, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A lot that we could say with reference to that verse. I'll confine my comment simply to this, that, that God refers to woman as a helper fit for him. We'll come back around to the word helper in just a moment, but let's first notice that phrase, fit for. Woman is a, is a human being fit for man. 
What does fit for mean? Well, if you happen to have an English Standard Version and you drop down to the footnote, you'll discover that fit for means corresponding to. Perfectly corresponding to. One reason we know that is because the next thing that God does in the story is parade every animal in the garden before Adam. And Adam names all of them. And when they get to the end of the exercise, Adam essentially confesses to God, Lord, I, all these animals are fine, I suppose. It's just that none of them here are my equal. And God says, lesson learned. Go to sleep. And he goes to sleep, and you know what happens. God goes to work, and he takes a rib from Adam's side and builds it, fashions it into a woman. So Adam says in Genesis 2.23, Woohoo! Well, that's the Hebrew. The English is, This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Are men and women equal? Yes, they are. From the very first page of the Bible, they are. Equal in every possible way. Equal in value and dignity. Yet different wildly different in terms of role and responsibility. Now back to that term helper. Here's where we're going to see the distinction, the difference. Does helper mean the junior varsity of humanity? Does it mean the second string gender? Is that what helper means? It can't. It can't mean that. First, because both God and Adam declared woman to be his equal, but also because of what the word helper, eitzor in the Hebrew, what it actually means. Helper is not a Hebrew way of describing a B-team gender. Rather, helper is a biblical way of showing exactly how women are to reflect the image of God into the world in a unique way. Different than man, yet perfectly corresponding to man. And you don't need to take my word for it. I would prefer that you take God's word for it. Over and over and over again across the pages of Holy Scripture, that word helper appears. And 95% of the time, 98% of the time, it's used with reference to God, not with reference to women. Psalm 30, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper the upholder of my life. Psalm 71, verses 23 and 24, which incidentally happened to me, my life verses. Everybody needs a life verse. Mine are Psalm 71, verses 23 and 24. Let me see if I can do it. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my lips will talk of your righteous help all the day long. Same word. Psalm 71, 23, and 24. Psalm 118, verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. Finally in the psalm, Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Are we picking up a theme yet? One more Old Testament verse along these lines. Hosea 13, 9. Hosea 13, 9 has... Israel ignoring God. I mean, worse yet, it has Israel aligning herself against God. And here's what the Lord says to his people in Hosea 13 9. You are against me? Against your helper? 
So what's, what's the situation when we get into the New Testament? Well, just briefly, we see the word help or helper speaking in every case of God. In John 14, 16, John 14, 26, it refers to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Other references to the Spirit as helper are John 15, 26, John 16, 7. The final reference in the entire New Testament to this word helper is a reference to God. Hebrews 13, 6, it's a quotation. It's a loose paraphrase of Psalm 118, verse 6, which says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I have lived on that promise more than once. So what's the point of all this? Is the point to communicate that women are divine? No, my wife is, but no. Of course not. The point, rather, is to communicate that women, intelligent, godly, strong, faithful women, every bit the equal of man, yet, when such women embrace this identity of helper, they are embracing a commitment to image forth what God is like to the entire created order. God is our helper. Woman as helper doesn't mean junior varsity human being. It means human being made in the image of God, charged with the glorious and joyful task of resourcing, supporting, assisting, sustaining, nourishing, serving, and upholding godly Christ-like men as they lead the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. One that every woman ought to embrace with passion and resolve and delight. This is a stunning calling. One even that Jesus couldn't do without. And now we look to our text, verses 2 and 3. And also, women were with him who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, this is a remarkable two verses. There is nothing like this in the rest of the Bible, even the rest of the Gospels. Luke only gives us this level of detail and insight into the ministry of Jesus. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, and evidently others, were all women who had had an encounter with Jesus. They had become disciples. Jesus, as we know, is a, is a soul physician. He's also a physician of the body of miraculous medical proportions. These women have come to know through one way or another the, the very powerful presence and power of this man. Uh, Mary in the days ahead is going to be one of the women who is at Jesus' side when he's crucified. She also is going to be one of the women who intend to visit the tomb to anoint Jesus' body after his burial. Joanna, the text says, was married to a man who worked in the court of King Herod. The man's name was Cusa. You see what this means? It means that even at this point in Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, that the message of Christ had penetrated all the way into the highest level of Jewish leadership in the nation of Israel, into Herod's very house. Herod's assistant. He'd either become a believer or at least his wife had. It's an amazing detail. Now, Susanna, we don't know anything more about except for this, that along with Mary and Joanna and these other women, they bankrolled the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. This is a remarkable discovery. Does this qualify as help? I would say so. Remember, Jesus, for all intents and purposes, is a homeless man. 
Remember that when you lay your head on your pillow tonight and you think about cranking up the AC because it's going to get to like 87 today. Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. So poor, in fact, that he lived on the goodwill and the generosity of these women who helped him out of their abundance. Think about it. Just think about Jesus. When Jesus told Peter in Mark 12, 15, bring me a denarius, did you ever stop to think that he had to borrow one for the purposes of the illustration because he didn't have one to his name? Not even a day's wage. Jesus lived on the benevolence and on the philanthropy of these women. And without it, in a very practical sense, the ministry of Jesus doesn't happen without women. Doesn't happen. So what does all this mean for women in the 21st century church today? Well, the first thing is is this. Don't let anyone, if you're a woman with us today or or a girl heading toward womanhood, don't let anyone ever minimize or dismiss what it means to be a helper in the service of the Great Commission. Don't ever let that happen. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways that women can contribute and make a fruitful and powerful contribution toward the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. The mission to be and make disciples of Jesus comes to a screeching halt without women participating. You say, yeah, but but women can't be pastors. Women can't be elders. What... What sort of meaningful teaching ministry can women have? Well, if you have a gift of teaching, let me offer three phenomenal ways that you can and ought to teach in the context of the local church and in the broader relational web of your lives. First and foremost, if you are a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother or an aunt, you have the privilege of doing what Lois and Eunice got to do for young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Teach the coming generation the Bible. Preach the gospel to your children, to your great-grandchildren, to your nieces and nephews. Women have an awesome responsibility of forming the generation that's going to transform the world through Jesus Christ. It's a weighty responsibility. Take that role in that ministry seriously. Secondly, in the context of the local church, if you're a, a woman with the gift of teaching, And perhaps shepherding, take your cues from Titus chapter 2 and teach other women around you how to follow Jesus, how to support their husbands and their families, how to make their houses into homes where Jesus Christ is honored and the Great Commission can run without hindrance. Who's going to do that if you don't? Who's mentoring the less mature women in our fellowship? It's not the men. Who's going to do it if you don't? Be serious about a Titus II type ministry. And finally, it may be that perhaps alongside your husband, if you're married, you might have a ministry like Priscilla alongside her husband Aquila. Acts 18, 24 to 26 convincingly demonstrates the, the role that women can and should have as it relates to private instruction, even of men like Apollos. At the very least, that text in Acts commends a ministry of biblical counseling for women, and it presupposes a certain level of theological depth and biblical training, which all women ought to pursue to the full extent that you can get. 
So women of Mount Evangelical Free Church, your role is twofold. First, to joyfully endorse the leadership of, of gifted men in the roles of pastor and elder in the local church. And secondly, use your gifts, use all of your gifts to edify the body of Christ, where they happen to be deed gifts like the women in our text today, or word gifts like the ones we just mentioned, Lois and Eunice, the women of Titus 2, and theologically sound and and uh, capable women like Priscilla, straightening out and strengthening the ministry of a powerful preacher like Apollos. Apollos was twice the preacher once Priscilla was done with him. So women among us, please hear the word of God, what it's saying to you in our text this morning. Jesus ordains women to help his kingdom mission. So let's sum up. In the mission of Jesus, men and women are equal in value and dignity, yet different very different in role and responsibility. Jesus ordains men to head his kingdom mission. Men don't shrink from that responsibility. And Jesus ordains women to help his kingdom mission. Women don't shrink from that responsibility. We'll end this sermon where the text began with a quote from the Nashville Statement. The final paragraph of the preamble reads this way. We believe that God's design for His creation and His way of salvation to serve and bring Him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said that He came that we might have life and have it in overflowing measure. He is for us and not against us. And everyone said? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your thoughts are not our thoughts. This culture is so upside down, inside out, and backward on the issue of gender. It is, it is just breathtaking to see how far afield from the vision of gender complementarity that we see in the scriptures that our nation has gone. We, we are literally careening off the rails over the cliff. And so I pray that we as a church would not just uh, wipe our hands clean of this mess, but first we would take ourselves into hand, whether we are boys or, or men or girls and women. I pray that we would happily and joyfully see our absolute equality in every possible way made in the image of God, equal in value and dignity. And two, Lord, let us unapologetically, happily, hopefully move into the roles that you've given us, different as can be, to live out a vision of manhood on the one hand and a, and a vision of womanhood on the other. And that, Lord, we would outjoy our culture in this. The only way that we might be able to be persuasive is that we can communicate this is not simply duty, but this is our utmost delight. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of Holy Scripture. We would not imagine things to be this way apart from your clear word. So thank you for the Bible. Thank you for a church that is hungry for the Scriptures and hungry to see how these things work out in practical terms. May we be a church that moves forward celebrating and demonstrating and communicating not only the goodness of manhood and womanhood, but supremely the gospel of Jesus Christ who calls men and women into his kingdom service. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.